know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Your host is Dr. Ted O'Connell, family physician, educator, and author of many well-known medical textbooks. He also founded the nation's first fellowship to formally combine community medicine and global health. Welcome to the podcast. This is Ted O'Connell, your host. You can find more information about me over at TEDxOConnell.com. We are continuing to talk about COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, And more and more, I'm finding the need to timestamp these interviews because everything is evolving so rapidly. Today is March 16th, 2020. Just last night, the mayor of Los Angeles ordered all restaurants to close. So we very definitely are seeing additional public health efforts being put into place to try to help control the spread of COVID-19. My guest today is Matt Christensen. Matt is a former first responder and emergency room technician who is now attending Chicago Medical School, doing clinical rotations in the heart of downtown Chicago, only a few minutes from O'Hare International Airport, where some of the first travel-related cases of COVID-19 were diagnosed. Matt has held a number of leadership positions on a local, state, and national level, currently sitting on the National Medical Student Council for the Emergency Medicine Residents Association, and serving as the student dean of Chicago Medical School. He also has a disaster response experience, having been dispatched for hurricane relief efforts in Houston, Texas in 2017, and Panama City, Florida in 2019. I would also like to add that Matt and I have done a number of writing projects together, and he really is super bright and super well-spoken and really just an outstanding collaborator. So Matt, thank you for have, for joining me on the podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience about yourself? Uh, well, thanks for having me, Dr. O'Connell. It's a privilege to be here, and I appreciate that introduction. Um, I, I do want to add I'm also an officer in the United States Navy, so I do need to drop the classic disclaimer that my words are mine, uh, don't necessarily reflect any of the organizations I work with or the medical school I attend, and certainly not the United States military. I'm speaking on my own behalf and from my own experience. That's great, Matt. And thank you for your service to our country. Um, We do have a disclaimer as well in the lead into this podcast that this is not medical advice that we're dispensing, but really just trying to provide information to the public to help them during this very difficult time. So thank you for adding that disclaimer. Um, So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you might teach our listeners. So if it's all right with you, I'm going to just jump in to uh, some questions for you. Yeah, absolutely. So Matt, you have experience as a first responder and helping with hurricane disaster response on two separate occasions. Can you tell us a bit about those experiences? Definitely. Um, so I first became licensed as uh, an emergency medical technician back in 2013. I worked for an ambulance company running pre-hospital 911 and basic uh, transport and NICU calls uh, on the graveyard shift in Los Angeles County uh, for a few years before I was hired to work in an emergency room in one of the local emergency departments. 
I worked there for another couple of years before finally starting medical school. Um, and I've, you know, I've had the chance to do CPR somewhere around 60 times on patients either in the field or in the emergency room. I've treated every type of trauma you can imagine from your classic knife and gun club type of injuries to some pretty nasty car accidents, probably 100 heart attacks or strokes uh, with plenty of minor scrapes and stubbed toes thrown in there as well. Um, it was honestly a life-changing experience to work uh, for an ambulance company and work in an emergency room. Uh, emergency medicine has such a unique culture that really resonates with me. Uh, and I, I honestly can't imagine myself working anywhere else. Uh, I have so much respect and appreciation for everybody who's out there right now working on the front lines, you know, putting themselves at risk for the, uh, the benefit of public health. Um, I just have a, a lot of respect for, for everybody working uh, in emergency medicine right now. And Matt, what would you say is were kind of the biggest learnings that you had in your experiences dealing with hurricane relief? Yeah, absolutely. So my experience with uh, hurricane relief and disaster response has been coordinated through a veteran-based nonprofit uh, called Team Rubicon Disaster Response. I've been volunteering with them since 2016. Um, and whenever a natural disaster or humanitarian crisis occurs, they reach out to their membership to recruit and dispatch anybody who's able and willing to respond. Um, so when I got that call uh, after Hurricane Harvey hit Houston back in 2017, you know, I was seeing what everybody else was seeing. I saw the news clips of people literally wading through what used to be their neighborhood. And I, I don't know how else to describe it, but I, I think a little bit of my first responder instinct kind of kicked in, you know. Um, I just had this overwhelming feeling that I had to be there and roll up my sleeves and, and help out however I could. Uh, so I, I worked it out uh, around my school schedule. I was sent to Houston for eight days and I helped. Um, there were a little over a hundred of us volunteers out there just clearing the roadways, uh, public areas of any of the hurricane debris that was lying around. We were working with the homeowners in the area to clear walkways in and out of their property so they had safe passage. Uh, we would salvage what we could. We helped perform expedient home repairs. So we were tarping roofs and sealing broken windows, you know, just things, things of that nature. Um, and then when it came time for, uh, you know, Hurricane Michael uh, hitting Florida in early 2019, uh, same story. I was sent to Panama City for, for some similar mitigation recovery operations. That's really incredible that you're giving back and, and contributing to those relief efforts. Um, how do you see the COVID-19 pandemic in relation to hurricane relief efforts? And, and is there anything we can learn from your previous experiences and other people's previous experiences with um, disasters and, and things like that to help us approach this current COVID-19 pandemic? You know, I see a, a lot of similarities between the two, for sure. Um, infectious disease is actually a very big deal during disaster relief, uh, especially hurricane response, because you can get a lot of stagnant water and soaked wood, carpet, insulation, uh, things like that that can act as a nidus for bacteria. Or, uh, you know, say, for example, there's one home uh, in one community that had black mold, but then it was ripped off its foundation. And now that mess is spread all over the place and you have to be careful of, uh, of where you're going. So learning how to use, uh, you know, PPE, the personal protective equipment and how to use it properly is crucial in both regards. Uh, everything from knowing how to properly fit and use your N95 respirator to putting on the full hazmat style Tyvek suit. 
Right, right. And you, you mentioned infectious disease. Our, our infectious disease specialists certainly are under a lot of pressure across the country as, as all of this evolves and they try to put public health measures into place at their local institutions and field calls from all of their colleagues. So uh, they are some of our current unsung heroes, I would say, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a Another similarity that I've noticed is uh, one of the most critical parts of combating both a disease pandemic like this and uh, a natural disaster has to happen before the event occurs. You know, you uh, properly anticipating and implementing safeguards that just minimize potential damage, uh, whether it's a, a 9.0 earthquake or the spread of a new virus. Um, obviously, we can't guarantee that those things will never happen, but we can certainly plan ahead to reduce the impact. Um, and uh, that's really what I've seen as the biggest learning point for situations like this is how absolutely critical it is to have a structured plan in place before something happens, since it will literally save thousands of hours, thousands of dollars and thousands of lives after the fact. If we can take the time to critically assess for weak points in the infrastructure and establish evidence based preventative measures ahead of time. Absolutely. Um, and Matt, you are in medical school in Chicago uh, in your third year. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. And so you have another couple of months and then a year to go before you start residency. Can you tell us a bit about how medical schools are approaching the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure. Um, so what I'm seeing across the country is that many medical schools are canceling all their large on-campus gatherings uh, for things like in-person lectures or any extracurricular activities, at least through the next two weeks, uh, some schools all through April, which unfortunately also means uh, there are celebrations for our fourth year students and their residency match results uh, that have un unfortunately been canceled. Um, there's many medical schools also transitioning to distance learning. So they're using lecture recordings from prior years uh, with an emphasis in online modules for any assignments or case discussions to avoid you know, large groups of students gathering. Um, I've not heard much about events that are tentatively scheduled for May for things like graduation, but that could easily change over the next couple of weeks. Um, my school has also indefinitely postponed all university related travel. Uh, so things like conferences or any international rotations, um, you know, those are, those are put on hold uh, at least through September. Um, and my schools asked students to alert our university if they plan on leaving the state for any personal reasons also. Um, our, my university specifically has made it clear that they're not closing, uh, but all student and staff business that can be done from home will be done from home for the remainder of the month with only the bare minimum in, uh, essential on-site faculty uh, and staff around to make sure that essential operations are taken care of but that they're minimizing the the risk of uh, exposure and spread. Wow. So it sounds like things are really running a little bit on a skeleton crew type of situation and exactly. really, really trying to protect um, students from getting infected and, and reduce the likelihood of person to person transmission in our communities. Would you say that's mm -hmm. kind of the, their approach? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I also, um, you know, being a little bit also on the administrative side uh, with some of my, my leadership roles, I also see the importance of protecting our faculty and our staff as well, because uh, our, our students are a, a, a very active bunch. You know, they're, they're 
mostly young with competent immune systems. Um, but I know a lot of our faculty are in that age range um, that are, you know, that are at risk. And so we want to make sure that our lecturers and our, our staff workers that work very hard and interact with students on a daily basis uh, are also protected. Yeah, that's really a great way to think about it, too. I had not really considered the age of faculty members and, and their need to be at home, if possible, and and keeping some distance and trying to do everything electronically and online if they can to, to reduce their possibility of getting infected. Uh, how would you say all of this is affecting medical students, both kind of you know, operationally from their ability to continue to progress towards graduation, as well as emotionally with all, you know, all the stress and anxiety that can go into this? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely been a whirlwind, especially out here in Chicago. Um, I, I heard you mention uh, the new uh, restrictions that have been implemented in California and here in Chicago as well, we had uh, Illinois Governor Pritzker uh, announced yesterday that basically all of Chicago is on hold for the next two weeks. We have our, our public schools closed, all tourist attractions and museums are closed, restaurants are not allowed uh, to seat any dine-in customers, um, O'Hare Airport's been nuts. Um, and so emotionally, a lot of students are becoming a little bit more wary for sure than they were um, you know, last month or when a lot of this, uh, you know, first first kind of started to, to gain some momentum. Uh, but from uh, from some of the other students I've talked to across the country, it, it sounds like there are some short term and long term implications with all of this. Uh, in the short term, obviously, students have to kind of adapt their study habits to whatever resources they personally have available instead of relying on, you know, things like lectures or the group study sessions. Um and many students that have their, their hands-on clinical training interrupted are, are disappointed from what I've heard to lose out on those opportunities. Um, but from a, a long-term perspective, even, these, even if these drastic quarantine measures only last for a few weeks, uh, they're already kind of throwing a wrench in uh, the application process for next year's graduating class as far as audition rotations and residency applications go. Um, you know, without diving too deep into the into the weeds, uh, but for those unfamiliar, the late summer and early fall time period every year is traditionally when fourth year medical students travel across the country and spend one to two months more or less auditioning for a residency spot. And in specialties like emergency medicine, these audition rotations are the only opportunity that we have to receive this specific standard letter of evaluation, which is used in our residency application. So in order to secure the audition rotation in the summer, we students are actively applying right now to the hospitals we want to rotate at. But because of all the strict travel restrictions and the unpredictable nature surrounding the COVID situation, there's many hospitals and clinical sites that are outright denying audition rotations altogether till further notice, which is absolutely understandable, uh, but it might inadvertently uh, trip up some of next year's graduating class when it comes to residency application and recommendation letters. So, of, of course, the greater good, health of the public, much more important than uh, recommendation letters for medical students. But it is important to keep this possible wrinkle in mind um, just in case it comes back to haunt the class of 2021 uh, around this time next year. Right. That's an outstanding explanation of that current situation, Matt. And 
I exist on the other side of the coin, running a residency program and being at an institution that offers audition rotations. And Mm -hmm. we're trying to figure out exactly the same thing about how interviews will work and how, you know, if this goes on for a while where medical students aren't able to do their rotations, whether they'll be ready when it comes time for interview season and graduation and whether that will lead to any delays. So there's really a lot of unknowns for this. And I'm sure that's driving a lot of anxiety for the class of 2021. I'm sure it's frustrating too, to have clinical rotations canceled because as medical students and, and residents, you are in medicine because you want to be contributing to society, helping to take care of patients, learning, you know, all of those things that are involved in, in medicine and to be, have that put on hold, I'm sure has to be frustrating. Yeah. And you know, I, I think that with, uh, with anything else, the more data you add and the more, uh, information that you can plug into, to unknowns, um, the more a lot of minds are kind of put at ease. Um, I, I did, uh, I did see that a couple days ago, um, you know, the, the powers that be, so to speak, are, are also taking notice. Uh, there's organizations like uh, the Council of Residency Directors or CORD that published recommendations uh, kind of advising some residency, medical school leadership, as well as medical students on how they might be able to bend some of these traditionally rigid application requirements in the face of, you know, such an unprecedented situation. Uh, but only, you know, time will tell how significant the long-term impact will be. And I, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure everybody will, uh, will come out on the other side, you know? Yes, I, I do agree. This is probably going to require some coordinated efforts on a higher level with some of these institutions to come to some agreement about, um, making some adjustments so that we can. Science, 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 science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Continue to educate the, the next generation of our healthcare workforce and ensure that they've received a really great education and um, just trying to figure out how to make all this work in the current context of what's going on in this country and worldwide. So one of the questions I was going to ask you is about the possibility of delays of graduation um, for next year. And, you know, obviously, if, if we're looking at a two-week hiatus, that won't affect anything. But if this drags on for months where students aren't able to do their clinical rotations um, it may potentially, without you know, institutions nationally coming to some agreement about um, making some changes in graduation requirements, it, it could lead to some delays. And do you think that this has the potential to worsen the shortage of physicians we already have in this country? You know, I, I am really hoping it does not uh, ultimately delay graduation. 
I do know that the the leadership at my school and at others across the country are, are working really hard to develop some alternative learning opportunities uh, for the current fourth year students, you know, so they can graduate in May, uh, but also for my classmates and I uh, for 2021 so that this doesn't start a domino effect that is still, uh, you know, affecting us trying to play catch up uh, this time next year. Um, I I don't think that the uh, these drastic quarantine measures will affect the uh, the physician shortage. Um, like like you were saying, I I do think that having the opportunity to work uh, on on the administrative side and, and get to know some of my medical school leadership as well as some some residency leadership. Um, you know, there's a there's a human on the other end. You know, they they can understand that there's uh, crazy times right now that might cause uh, kind of a a wrinkle in the the day to day you know regular process. Um, but I think that uh, especially emergency medicine, but medicine uh, you know as a body will be able to to roll with the punches um, and figure out a way to adapt that does not ultimately cause even fewer, um, you know, frontlines workers on the other end. Right. And, you know, you mentioned a domino effect. If this goes on for a prolonged period of time and medical students are having to make up their rotations while the next class is coming along, a lot of medical schools really struggle to find enough clinical sites for their students to do all of their rotations and so if you're having students essentially needing to make up some of their core rotations, that can kind of lead to a, a log jam in the system for the next class coming along, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, yeah, there's uh, the, the phrase about too many cooks definitely is definitely prescient in, in times like this. Right, right. Um, so you mentioned some of the things in terms of going to online learning and some schools canceling clinical rotations. Um, are, are there other things medical schools and clinical sites are doing to protect their students and to protect the, the general public? Yeah. And, uh, that's really, I think the, the million dollar question with all of this, um, I am really grateful for my university leadership specifically. They created a, um, a, a web page specific for, for COVID-19, um, both in our, our local county, our state, and, uh, you know, in a national context. And they've linked their primary resources, but they're also kind of explaining it in a way that, uh, like, just explaining how it affects uh, the students and how the information is informing their university decisions. And I think that's been very helpful. Because, um, again, a lot of the concern around all of this is surrounding the unknown. So that kind of helps fill some of those gaps um, and add some explanation to what otherwise would just be students being told what to do. And uh, without knowing you know, the decision making behind that, it can definitely um, just push forward some, uh, some uneasiness. Um, but uh, at other schools, um, obviously the, the key thing here is you're trying to strike a balance between weighing the value of in-person, hands-on clinical patient care experience versus the potential health risk of unnecessarily exposing, you know, our, our students and our future uh, healthcare providers to this virus. And while every institution, you know, is uh, responsible for their own policies, um, I have seen some pretty drastic changes uh, for clinical rotations in just the last two days. 
Um, you know, like seven or 10 days ago, most medical schools were still very earnestly insisting on keeping their students at their clinical sites. They were instructing them to follow the direction of whatever specific hospital or clinical site uh, they were assigned to, uh, which generally just meant that no student should see patients with any undiagnosed respiratory complaints. Uh, they should notify their preceptor, immediately go home and self-quarantine if they themselves start to exhibit any flu-like symptoms. Um, but over the last 48 hours, uh, I've seen across the country more and more schools that are pulling their students out of clinical rotations as a precaution. Um, my school is actually one of them. Um, I, got an, I got an email less than 24 hours ago that my current clinical rotation has been suspended for the next two weeks. And I have uh, other student contacts in Florida, North Carolina, Mississippi, California, off the top of my head, that have all received very similar instruction uh, just since Friday. Um, and honestly, I do think it's a smart move, um, especially in major cities like Chicago, New York, L.A., Seattle. Um, I understand that this is a, you know, a one of a kind learning experience for us in the medical field. I agree with the principle that taking care of the sick is why we chose medicine. Uh, but from a, a, lo a logistics and operations standpoint, the, the reality is that the way things are unfolding, I, I don't think the benefit outweighs the risk. Uh, where many medical students are performing tasks that could be delegated to other members of the care team um, for the sake of learning concepts that could reasonably be learned later in the clinical training. Uh, by continuing to show up, I think that students are potentially exposing not just themselves, but also any family members they go home to, uh, to this virus with very limited, crucial, time-sensitive benefit uh, to them remaining on the units that they're on. And I mean, for example, you know, without perseverating myself too much, um, I would not hesitate to put myself in harm's way to take care of one of my patients. But you'd better believe that I would never forgive myself if I brought COVID-19 back home to my wife after a shift where I was mostly just shadowing for the day. Right, right. That's a great way to look at that. You know, Matt, we're talking about medical schools and medical education a bit here. Could you break it down for our audience, kind of the basics of what the four years of, of medical school look like with the preclinical years, and then more specifically what your third year looks like in terms of the core rotations, and then a bit about what fourth year looks like? So they have some, some real understanding about what that phase of medical education looks like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. Um, so bottom line, every type of doctor goes through the same, more or less, uh, more or less the same four years of medical school. Um, I've always thought about it not as four years, but as two years plus two years. Um, the first two years are uh, the same kind of traditional learning environment you've had since, uh, since high school. You know, high school, college, you're sitting in a lecture, um, you're learning from in-person face-to-face uh, -face kind of um, instructor trainee type of lectures. Um, a, lot of, a lot of schools are slowly transitioning to other more dynamic and progressive uh, methods, but the bottom line is the first two years, you're learning the content. Um, once you start your third year, that's when a lot of the clinical hospital rotations begin um, and medical students rotate through uh, specific specialties for, you know, four, six or eight week periods, kind of uh, getting their feet wet, learning how to apply the knowledge that they gained their first two years in a clinical setting, learn how to, to treat, 
you know, and interact with not just patients, but also with the, the rest of the patient care team that you'll be working with. Um, and then your fourth year is when you take a lot of those uh, clinical skills that you've, uh, that you've developed over the prior three years. You start to decide which specific specialty you want to apply for residency for. Um, and then instead of changing departments and specialties every few months like you did during your third year, you stay in the same specialty, but you move hospitals every few months in that same specialty uh, to kind of hone your skills and again to kind of show off uh, show off your skills, um, show what you can do as you apply for residency. And then this whole process then moves into the internship and residency phase once you've graduated from medical school, right? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Great. That's an, uh, that's an outstanding description. So up until today, uh, you've been working on a labor and delivery rotation in obstetrics. Is that right? That's right. I've been on uh, labor and delivery for the past four weeks. Can you tell our audience what a rotation like that looks like through the eyes of a learner, through a medical student's eyes? Absolutely. Yeah, it has been an incredible experience. Um, my, my shifts have been as short as 10 hours or as long as 14. Uh, but on a floor like L&D, uh, you know, something could happen at any moment. Um, I spend generally the first hour of my shift rounding on any new uh, admitted patients uh, just to introduce myself, confirm that they're comfortable with me being in the room and assisting the obstetrician or the midwife during delivery. Uh, and honestly, the, the hospital that I'm at really puts its students through the ringer before we're allowed on the floor. So despite the fear that I, I'm sure grips everybody's hearts when they hear the words, hi, I'm a student and I'll be helping deliver your baby. Um, the, the hospital has it optimized so that the mom and baby are 100% safe while still giving us students the chance to actively learn and participate. Um, so I've had the chance to you know, show some new dads how to cut the cord. Um, I've had the chance to, to chat with some families about how and why they chose their baby's name. Um, and it's, it's just really special to be part of that moment. You know, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. That's great, Matt. Um, so the labor and delivery unit where you're working, how are, what are they doing to address the COVID-19 pandemic and trying to keep their pregnant patients safe? Yeah. Uh, so fortunately, the hospital that I'm rotating through uh, already had some pretty strict infectious disease protocols in place. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a number of opportunistic prenatal uh, and antenatal infections that we have to watch out for, uh, you know, for, for mom and baby anyway. Uh, so most of our COVID response uh, on that floor for the last couple of weeks has mostly just been tightening up the screws, so to speak, making sure everyone is crystal clear and properly adhering to protocols that were already in place. Okay, great. And just so our audience knows, in an upcoming uh, episode, we're going to be talking to an obstetrician to really dive into details about COVID-19 and pregnancy and, and what you need to know about that topic. So the hospital, Matt, where you're working, are they placing restrictions on visitors? And I, I would even specifically ask about visitors to the labor and delivery floor, because that's where you're working. And that's a, a time of great joy where family members usually want to want to be there after the delivery to help celebrate. Absolutely. You know, I um, they have not announced any specific additional restrictions on labor and delivery specifically. Uh, at least not more than usual, because um, 
labor and delivery does usually have some pretty strict visitor restrictions compared to other units just to to mitigate situations like, you know, intimate partner violence and, and things like that. But the hospital as a whole did significantly ramp up its visitor scrutiny uh, about 14 days ago. Um, visitors were, were always limited to just two per patient, but now they are going through kind of a um, a, a grossly screened uh, process when they check in at the front entrance. Um, they're, they're not allowed to visit or uh, you know enter the, the hospital hallways if they have any kind of flu-like symptoms, if they traveled recently, um, or if they've been in contact with anybody who has. Okay, very good. Uh, you may this next question that I wanted to ask you, you. We've touched on some of it already, so if the question's been answered, feel free to let me know. Sure. Uh, but what is the role of medical students in helping to contain the spread of COVID nineteen and to treat affected patients? Uh, you know, with the rotations being held up, that that treatment may be a little bit limited. But are there other opportunities for you to be involved in community efforts around this? Yeah, honestly, um, I I see this as an opportunity for us uh, to kind of take ownership of our role uh, in the medical community. Because sure, as as students, we're not quite there yet, um, but there's absolutely uh, some kind of self directed and, and self motivated steps that we can take uh, to spread at least the, uh, the 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 minimal but still very present uh, medical education that we've received. Um, and I, I do think that we have a lot of the same responsibilities as everybody else, you know, just to, to lead by example, wash your hands every time it crosses your mind, be very painfully aware of where your hands are at all times and what you're touching. Um, for medical students, uh, we got to remember to compulsively wipe off our stethoscopes. Um, for myself, I was, uh, I was also wiping off the soles of my shoes with an alcohol wipe, um, before getting in, in my car at the end of my shifts. Um, I've also heard recommendations that if you're still on your clinical rotations um, or just out in the public, if you're still out working, just you know, minimize the trips you take or, or errands you run before and after your shifts just to minimize the risk of exposure. Uh, and even if you're pulled from your clinical rotations or you're currently self-quarantined, um, you know, medical students, if you have a, a social media presence, consider using the medical knowledge you have just to share some evidence-based recommendations and combat some of the misinformation that we all see floating around. That's great, Matt. You just mentioned sharing information and trying to leverage your knowledge. And, and with that, I really appreciate your being on this podcast to help educate the public about what's going on. Besides what I've asked you uh, so far, is there anything at all related to any of this topic that you want to talk with our audience about? Um, no, I, I, uh, I appreciate you asking the questions that you have, and I appreciate the opportunity to add what little bit of insight I've got. Um, I, just like everybody else, I'm on the edge of my seat seeing how this all plays out, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, getting back out there when I get the chance. Well, Matt, we really appreciate your time and your thoughts on this topic and lending your expertise and experience to our audience's knowledge. So thank you for taking the time out of your day um, to join us. And I hope you keep yourself and your family safe out there. <laughs> thank you. My pleasure. Likewise. All right, Matt. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. 
Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. Be vigilant, but remain calm. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice.